Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today on Something You Should Know, have you ever wondered if it isn't just a little bit gross to eat birthday cake after someone blew candles out all over it? Then, the steps to take to be a peak performer in your career. Starting with set big goals. So setting big goals, now that sounds really obvious, and most of us say, well, of course I have big goals. But the science is really clear that the bigger goal you have, the more motivated you're going to be to achieve that goal. Also, should you get a new car even if there's nothing wrong with the old one? And we could all likely improve the quality of our writing. But how? Let me be as clear as I can about this. Anything you write would be better if it were 20% shorter. There there are some things that need a more detailed explanation, but even the things that need a more detailed explanation, you're still going to be better off if you leave some stuff out. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hey, welcome to Something You Should Know. Yeah, I read somewhere, or maybe I saw somebody speak somewhere that said, you know, one of the keys to a successful podcast is that you have to publish consistently. And that is something we've been pretty good at. Every week, we publish three episodes every Monday, Thursday, and Saturday morning at 12.03 a.m. Pacific time is when the episode is published. We've been doing it a while now, and consequently, there are a lot of other previous episodes that if you haven't heard them, I invite you to go back and listen. Most of the episodes of this podcast are pretty evergreen, and uh, if you haven't heard them all, there's 524 
If you haven't heard them all, I invite you to go back and listen. First up today, I bet if you've ever gone to a birthday party, and this is even long before COVID came along, you've probably wondered, just how healthy is it to eat cake that someone just blew all over? After all, in order to blow out the candles, somebody has to blow on the cake. And therefore, doesn't that mean that the person's spit and germs are now on that cake that you're about to eat? Well, the answer is yes, but it may not be as gross as it sounds. In an experiment with two cakes, the cake that was blown on did grow more bacteria than the control cake that no one blew on. The interesting fact is that the more candles on the cake, the more bacteria ended up in the frosting. Presumably, that's because the person blowing out the candles had to blow more to get all the candles out. Now, the good news is that most microorganisms in the human mouth are not harmful as long as the person is healthy. So, yes, you're eating someone else's germs, but they're likely not going to do you any harm. And that is something you should know. As a listener to this podcast there's a pretty good chance that you are interested in self-improvement. And so you're probably pretty well aware that there's been a lot written about peak performance. How do you excel? How do you do your job better? There are a lot of gurus who claim to know the secret to peak performance. And there are tons of blogs and podcasts and articles and books and TED Talks. There's all sorts of material on how to raise your level of performance how to reach your potential, how to be all you can be. But with so many people telling you that they have the answer to peak performance, how do you know who's right? Well, meet Mark Efron. Mark is the founder and president of Talent Strategy Group. He publishes a magazine called Talent Quarterly, and he's the author of a new book called Eight Steps to High Performance. Welcome, Mark. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So with this seemingly endless supply of advice on how to perform better and reach your potential, what do you bring to the discussion that is different than what we've all already heard? Well, you highlighted an important fact. There has been a lot written about high performance, and I think that adds to the confusion about what really matters. And the whole reason that I wrote Eight Steps to High Performance was to say, let's try and consolidate the the facts, the knowledge that really matters, and get that out to folks so they understand exactly what to do and don't have to sort through all that information on their own to come to a, a correct answer. And so maybe we should define, what do you mean by high performance? Can you define the term for me? Sure. When I speak about high performance, what I mean is that you are, uh, your behaviors and your delivery, so what you're doing and how you're behaving, is better than what 75% of your peers are doing. So basically, you're uh, delivering and behaving better than three out of four people that you're working with on a consistent basis. So it's not that you have a good day or a good month, but consistently, year in, year out, you're getting that done. Ooh, sounds exhausting. It's a high standard, exactly. So if I'm going to work harder and be better than, than three out of four people in the room, what am I going to get back? What are the benefits of doing all this? 
Well, the benefits are um, are huge, meaning you're going to get not just the obvious things, which is ideally higher pay and more opportunities for promotion, but you're going to be able to get choice assignments, so you'll develop faster. You'll probably get more exposure to more important people in the organization. And a lot of that is going to buy you the flexibility to do more of what you want to do. High performance is essentially a way to earn yourself the opportunity to do other things that you want to do. You're kind of putting in the hard time to say, hey, now that I've proven how good I am, maybe you'd let me do X or maybe I could have time to do Y. But until until you've demonstrated that you're a higher performer, then you really haven't earned that extra credit to do other things. Okay, so when someone decides and agrees with you and says, all right, well, I'm, I'm going to try to be better than three out of four people at work, wh- what does that mean? To do what? Wh- what do you do differently? The challenge is for, for each of us, there is what we call a fixed 50 and a flexible 50 in all of us. The fixed 50, think of that as all the unchangeable things about you. So it's your intelligence, your personality, your socioeconomic background, all the things that as of this very moment, you cannot do a darned thing about, but that still will affect your performance. So that's the fixed 50. And what we say is ignore that. You can't do a darn thing about it. If it's great, cool. If it's not great, fantastic. The flexible 50, so that's the other half you can control, to the extent you maximize that, you can be a higher performer. And there's great science to back up all the steps, but none of the steps are that difficult. They simply take effort. All right. Well, let's talk about them. What's the, I don't know if there's an order to them or not, but pick one and let's start there. Sure. Let's start with goals. So starting with set big goals. So setting big goals, now that sounds really obvious, and most of us say, well, of course I have big goals. But the science is really clear that the bigger goal you have, the more motivated you're going to be to achieve that goal. And so most of us like to think, hey, I'm doing a good job, or I'm doing a little more than, than last year. A high performer is going to say, what would it take for me to deliver twice what I delivered this year? And while that's probably not a realistic goal, what it's going to do is really sharpen your focus to say, there's probably a bunch of things that I do every day that really aren't leading to high performance. If I either stopped doing those or swapped in something else, would I be a higher performer? So part of it is saying, how could I increase my performance? But that also means I need to increase my focus on the few things that really matter. So I few really big goals is going to allow most of us to be much higher performers. But where's the line between, you know, ridiculous and, I mean, I could set the goal to be emperor of the universe, but, you know, that's probably so ridiculous that it doesn't mean anything. There's a concept we introduced in the book that might be a helpful way of thinking about this. Uh, and it's actually drawn from, um, drawn from Olympic weightlifters. And there's this theory called maximum theoretical performance. And if you're a weightlifter, that means given the size of your body, your muscles, your nutrition, kind of everything that goes into lifting more weight, what's the theoretical maximum amount of weight that you could lift? So if everything was going perfectly, what's the theoretical maximum you could lift? And what the the science would say is, you know, the average Jill or Joe in the gym can lift about 60% of that maximum, and the average trained athlete can lift about 80% of that maximum. The average Olympic athlete can lift about 95% of that maximum. 
And what it says is, for most of us, there's a lot of headroom above where we currently perform. Apply that concept to every day at work. So if you had the perfect motivation, the perfect training, the perfect set of tools, how much higher of a performer could you be? That's probably a reasonable way to approach, hey, what does it look like? Maybe I can't be emperor of the universe, but how about prince of the universe? Uh, could I be duke of the universe? Is, is there a standard... <laughs> That still feels realistic, um, but that would still be a meaningful stretch. Yes. But if I'm going to be Duke of the Universe, I might as well go for the whole the whole there, thing. There you Don't go. You let's just let's shoot for it. That'd be kind of a... And, and the old adage, I'm probably going to get this wrong, I'm not great on, uh, on analogies, kind of the shoot for the moon or shoot for the stars, you'll land on the moon or something like that. Uh, from a science perspective, it's really, really true. Um, and so maybe you won't uh, become emperor, but you'll probably get a lot closer to it than everybody else who's not trying to be emperor will get. All right. So set big goals is first. What's next? Uh, really all about your behaviors. And so when we think about behaviors at work, we don't want to simply think about what I would call good citizen behaviors. I'm nice to others. I don't lie, cheat, or steal. These are all good things. We don't want uh, liars or cheaters or stealers at work, but that's not going to differentiate me as a high performer. It's going to differentiate me as a, a decent person to have in the office. What we need to do if we want to be a high performer is understand what are the few performance-driving behaviors that my company needs to see from me. And the most straightforward way to find that out is to ask your boss. This may seem very obvious, but most of us never go to our boss and say, hey, boss, you know, I'd like to think I'm you know, pretty good. I'd like, like to think I behave pretty well, but are there one or two behaviors that I could either start doing or do more of or maybe even do less of that are going to make me a higher performer here? I guarantee you, your boss has at least one thing in mind right now that you could do to change your behaviors. He or she is not going to have trouble answering that question. But we need to take the initiative to ask, and we need to get our egos out of the way and recognize we can all get better at at least one thing. What's the one thing that you might want to get better at right now? My guest is Mark Efron. He's the author of the book, Eight Steps to High Performance. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, 
something you should know? I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So Mark, one of the things you write about and that I think is so important is the ability to, and, and the necessity, to connect with other people. Certainly in my life, and I've seen people who are a lot better at it than me, when you can pick up the phone and call the right person at the right time that can help you, uh, that's gold. Absolutely. And let's think about connecting both inside and outside of work. And the challenge for a lot of folks who aren't good at this, and it tends to be more introverts uh, who aren't good at it, is sometimes it feels just very unnatural or fake. Um, Hey, I don't really even like that guy. Why would I want to connect with him? People who are effective at connecting at work recognize that other people, both their peers and their boss, are going to be the best assets in their high performance, kind of the best supporters of their high performance. And your peers can't necessarily make you higher performers, but, or make you a higher performer, but they can certainly stop you from being a high performer. Uh, and your boss can certainly help make you a higher performer. And so the strategy is very direct and very planful. And especially for people who aren't naturally comfortable doing this, hopefully we'll give them a bit of structure. And that starts with simply rating your relationships with your peers and key people at your manager's level. So who are the high performers at your manager's level and who are your peers? Simple one to five scale. Five is I have a perfect relationship. They like me a lot. I like them a lot. One is I have no relationship. Rate them on that one to five scale. Anyone who you rate as a three or less, you need to go have a cup of coffee with them, grab lunch, get to know them and have them get to know you a little better, both personally and professionally. And that goes for your boss as well. Uh, There is a lot of room between getting to know your boss better and being a total suck up. And what most people are concerned about is if they say something nice to their boss, they give their boss a compliment, then they're going to uh, appear to be the office suck-up. Again, there's a lot of gray area there. Uh, Your boss is a human being, too. Uh, They like to be complimented genuinely. Uh, They like to have things that they're good at pointed out. There's nothing wrong with telling your boss hey, boss, I thought that was a brilliant presentation. Or, hey, boss, you seem to be really good at building strong relationships around here. I'd love to hear some of your secrets about how you do that. When I look back at the people I've worked for, my immediate supervisors, in a lot of cases, I would have had a difficult time trying to establish that kind of relationship and talk to them in the way you just described. My take would be most of us really underplay that. Most of us don't have anywhere near as strong of a relationship with our boss as we should. And it's because most of us feel that there is kind of a power difference there. Well, uh, you know, he wouldn't want to have lunch with me or you know, he probably doesn't have time to have a cup of coffee. Well, probably one good way to find out is to ask the question. Uh, Most bosses, again, they are humans, surprisingly, uh, and they might actually want to engage in a human behavior, like having a chat with somebody about their life and and what they do on vacation and really just getting to know someone better. And again, that's what's going to differentiate a high performer. A high performer might not feel comfortable with that behavior, but they recognize it's an important thing to do to to sustain and, and create a good foundation for high performance. I know you talk about faking it, and I think that makes people uneasy sometimes where they think, but, you know, 
that's not genuine, that's not me, and, and I, I can't fake it. Absolutely. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, the, an excerpt from the book on faking was published in the LinkedIn weekend essay recently, and I spent the entire weekend responding to hundreds of angry comments from people suggesting that faking it was a, a horrible thing to do and how they would never do it in their lives. Uh, here's what we mean by faking. What it means is that, as for the example we were just talking about, some people just aren't naturally comfortable connecting with others at work. Great. You're going to need to, if you want to be a high performer, fake being an extrovert. You don't need to become an extrovert. It's unlikely that you're going to fundamentally change your personality from being an introvert to an extrovert. So guess what? You're going to have to fake it. Uh, and we have a, I have a story at the beginning of that chapter about Adrian Brody um, in, the, um, in the film The Piano, who t- completely transformed his mind and body to be able to portray that role. Sometimes we simply need to say, what's the role I need to play today? Hey, I'm going to walk into that meeting where I don't know anybody. I would naturally not talk to anybody. What would an extrovert do in that situation? I'm going to go fake that I'm an extrovert in that situation because I know that's what's needed to be a high performer. I think we need to stop being so precious about who our genuine selves are and who our authentic selves are and say, what's needed to win in this situation? And stop using, oh, well, that's not who I am, or I can never do that, as an excuse for low performance. High performers flex those behaviors. So talk about the importance of sleep when it comes to peak performance. Sure, and this is one of the most interesting findings that I was doing the research. I read uh, more than 2,000 academic articles trying to sort through what's really proven to improve individual performance, and I looked in at uh, a variety of things that involve our body. I looked at food, I looked at exercise, I looked at sleep, and while I really actually thought exercise was going to be the most powerful factor, it turns out that neither food nor exercise has any direct impact on performance at work. Now, they might both keep you alive, and so they're a precursor, uh, but they're not going to make you a higher performer tomorrow, while sleep, on the other hand, actually can either help or really undercut your performance. And it turns out it's much more the quality of that sleep than it is the quantity. And the challenge for somebody who wants to be a higher performer is there is a lot of very uh, kind of nebulous information out there. You hear things like six to 10 hours. Well, that's a four-hour difference, um, you know, which is the right number. And what I describe in the book is that if you sort through all the science, it feels like about six and a half to seven hours of high-quality sleep a night is what's going to uh, give you the foundation for a great performance the same day. But I also write about in the book that that might just not be realistic for a lot of folks. And if you get that five-hour night, what are the best strategies for actually being a high performer the next day? Let me ask you about something that applies to me and to, I think, a lot of other people who don't work in organizations. And more and more people don't. They're freelancers, they work at home, or they work in very small offices with just a couple of people. So seemingly a lot of what you're talking about doesn't apply, but there, there must be some things that, that entrepreneurs and people who work alone can take from this. 
Absolutely. Well, the, the good news here is that entrepreneurs are humans too, and so the, the core messages still apply. And let me just hit some of those really fast. Setting big goals, especially if you're in a more entrepreneurial situation, it can be challenging to say, hey, I've got so many things to work on or so many exciting opportunities. What are the two big things you want to accomplish this year? Getting to that focus especially is going to help entrepreneurs who tend to have lots of great ideas to focus on the few big things that really matter. Write those things down. I have them on my board. We only have 10 people here in our company. I've got those three big goals written down on my whiteboard in front of me. So focus. Um, Same thing around connecting. You might think, well, it doesn't really matter. I know the the few people in my organization. Well, great. What does your external network look like? Who are the people who can be most helpful to you as you want to grow? Who are the leaders in your field? How well do you know them? You should have an external connection strategy that you manage just like you do an internal connection strategy if you're in a company. Even things like committing your body, the one we just talked about uh, around sleep. Entrepreneurs might say, man, I love being at the office 24-7. Well, kudos for your determination, but um, are you managing your sleep in a way that actually fuels entrepreneurial behavior? So while a lot of these strategies that I outline in the book, each of the eight steps can certainly be applied to large companies, they are based on the science of effective human behavior. So whether you're sitting uh, by yourself doing great work or you're sitting with 10,000 other folks, they're going to be equally powerful. Well, this is great. And I like the fact that what you did is take the science of peak performance, this isn't just your opinion of how you can be all you can be, but really what the science says, and, and I think that helps cut through all of the piles and piles of material out there to get right to the core of what works. So well done. The good news is we know what works. We don't need to come up with more answers. We've studied human behavior for years and years. We actually know what helps make people high performance. We should just take the shortest, surest route to do that, and that's the Eight Steps to High Performance. And that is the name of the book, Eight Steps to High Performance. It's by Mark Efron, and there is a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Mark. My pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. Think about how much you write. You write texts and emails, reports, memos. When you add it all up, you probably write quite a bit. And you generally write to communicate with other people. What you write is meant to be read by someone else. So you write to communicate your thoughts, but you also have to keep in mind how people read. Because if people don't understand it or they don't actually read it, then what's the point of writing it? Josh Burnoff has been on a bit of a mission to help people improve their writing. He's the author of a book called Writing Without B.S., Although, in the real title, the BS is not abbreviated. Hey, Josh, welcome. So, it seems to me that over the past several years, writing has changed, and it seems that writing has changed in large part because the way people read has changed. So, people today mostly read on a screen, whether they're reading emails or websites or whatever. They're reading it on a mobile phone or a a computer screen. And the writing just does not get to the point quickly enough. We are deluged with information, and people don't know how to tell the truth quickly. Because they're doing what? What else are they doing? They do slow warm-ups, you know, extra uh, sentences and paragraphs before they get to the point. 
they pad things out from fear. They use stuff like jargon and qualifiers to cover their butts. And in general, they're just not capable of the kind of direct communication that's needed in today's business world. Why do you think we do that? Because everyone who writes also reads, and and anyone who reads appreciates when people get to the point and write clearly and all that. So why do we not take that advice when we write? The real problem is fear and training. Fear because people just are worried about being held responsible for a clear and direct statement. Also, what they learned in high school and college was that uh, the longer and more puffed up the stuff you said, the better, better grade you got. And while that may work in college, it's not going to be what gets you ahead in the business world. And yet it would seem that just being direct would be pretty easy. If it, say what you want to say, just say it. You would think that, but like most simple things, it's simple to experience, but not so simple to actually learn. People have bad habits like writing in the passive voice, uh, uh, actually being direct enough to get to the point in the first two sentences of an email feels unnatural to most people. And, of course, they're concerned about what happens if someone actually acts on what they say. So they they cover themselves with unclear and vague language. And it's it's really a skill to be direct in a way that communicates well and doesn't doesn't offend the person that you're trying to speak with. So can you either give me some examples that might help um, and or some maybe rules to live by that, that, that would help people clear things up? Uh, yeah, I'll give you an example. Um, so uh, you may have heard that uh, Samsung had a little problem with a few of their phones exploding and catching on fire. And they put out a release about this, but the release, while it's relatively short and clear, doesn't use the word fire anywhere in it. They call them battery incidents. Well, you know what? If you're going to try and communicate to people what the problem is, I think you have to tell the truth about the fact that some of your phones catch on fire, not call them battery incidents. Yeah, but you'd certainly understand why a company would want to want to downplay that their product bursts into flames. And, and that's why people hire, you know, corporate PR people to smooth things over. You know, people are often in a position in business where they have to communicate bad news. And the best way to do that is to say, okay, here's what happened, here's why it happened, and here's what we're going to do about it. If your manager looks at that, and understands what you're uh, coming across with, they are much more likely to respond in a positive way than if you try and hide it and they have to figure it out by digging through all the qualifiers you've put in place. What are some of the, and you you mentioned getting to the point in the first two sentences, speaking in a passive voice, talk about those things or or any of the other things that, that specifically cause problems and how to fix them. I'll tell you one thing that people do that seem like, it's obviously right and is wrong for today's world. And that is people write in paragraphs. They write emails in paragraphs. They write reports in paragraphs. And paragraphs are a very difficult thing to get the meaning out of quickly. Uh, we have all these tools now, uh, bullets, subheadings, links, uh, graphics. And with a little bit more effort in thinking about how you're communicating, you're in a position to create something that's easier to skim uh, something that's going to be a lot more effective in a world where people have hundreds of communications that are coming at them every day. 
Yeah, and and when you, you talked about uh, speaking in a passive voice, what do you mean? Well, uh, in a passive voice sentence, the subject of the sentence is not the actor. And that's easiest to understand if you look at uh, a sentence that might say something like, uh, uh, these cost overruns must be closely monitored. But it doesn't say who's supposed to be monitoring them. And in general, when you have a sentence in it and it leaves you at the end saying, yeah, but who's supposed to be doing that? Then that sentence is in the passive voice. You need to rewrite that sentence, the active voice, saying uh, government regulators must monitor these cost overruns. You know what occurred to me is that because people have been doing this for so long, writing real fluffy and adding stuff and not being direct and speaking in the passive voice and all the things you're talking about, that we kind of just expect it and we kind of muddle through and don't even, we don't even really get upset about it. We just figure, well, that's just the way people write. One of my principles is that real creativity comes from seeing the obvious before anyone else. And in this case, what's obvious is that there's so much BS in the communication we're all receiving, we all correct for it. But digging through that takes extra time and effort. Uh, I've calculated that this is like a 6% tax on every dollar that's paid, every wage dollar that's paid in America just the time that we spend trying to dig through unclear communication. So yes, it's true. We all know about it. You can live with it, or we can try and change it. And if you do, individually, you'll stand out from the people that are communicating with BS. What do you mean by front-load your writing? Front-loading is a principle that says you want to have the payload, the most important information, in the first two sentences of anything that you write. And uh, in an email, for example, rather than warming up and saying, how was your day, you get directly to, you know, the machinery has flaws and we need to change the way we tool it or whatever it happens to be. By doing that, you ensure that somebody who is going through that quickly knows exactly what you're getting at and can decide to read the remainder of the information or to skip it because it's not relevant to them. So how do you do that? Is there a technique to make sure you do that correctly? Here's the technique for front-loading your writing. It's natural to try and write a paragraph or two to warm up, but when you look at your writing, remove the first paragraph. Ask yourself if anything has been lost. If so, dump it. Uh, If you haven't lost anything, dump it. Now look at the next first paragraph. Do you need that? If you don't need it, dump that. and Keep doing that until you get to the actual point of what you're trying to say. I know for me and for a lot of people, one of the hardest parts of writing anything is starting where do you start? How do you begin? And I, I remember hearing that uh, the writer James Michener once said that it wasn't that he was such a great writer, but that he felt he was a good rewriter, and that what you really need to do is just start writing. Start writing anything, anywhere, because the magic happens when you rewrite it, when you come back and fix it. Do you think that that in today's world... That's a luxury we can afford, or should we be able to nail it first time around? Most people don't have the discipline to nail it the first time around. And rewriting is a key skill that they need to learn. Even if you're sending an email, you want to look at it and edit it. If it's going to an important person like your boss or, or to several people, spend the time to make that better. Uh, I think it also helps to have an editor if you're working on a a larger project, someone who can give you the perspective to say, you know what, 
this piece isn't working as well and uh, change the order of these things. It'll be clearer that way. It would seem that social media writing is different, that, that somehow the rules are all different and the, the regular rules of writing are kind of out the window. Social media writing is very different. Um, I actually, uh, my first book was a book on social media, and I've been looking at it for over nine years at this point. Uh, people tend to write in a more informal fashion in social media, but these same principles of being direct uh, and clear apply if you're going to be using, say, Facebook or, or Twitter or Instagram for marketing purposes. One of the key things that people doing social media need to recognize is that once you have put something out there, you're not done. It's actually the response that other people make and your response to them that determines whether you're successful in communicating in social media. Well, it does seem when you read social media posts, generally they are shorter. And so that's in this world of where everybody's going on and on in their writing that social media is helping people perhaps be a little more disciplined and uh, shorter and to the point. And I think that's influencing the way we communicate in all channels, and that's a good thing. Uh, the, the more informal communication is more natural in today's business world. Uh, but the uh, other thing that the reader in social media expects is that if you say something, you're going to be able to respond to what what they say, and uh, that's why it's more of a conversation and less of a... uh... What other things, if there are any, what are the things that when you read someone else's writing are like fingernails on a blackboard to you? I mean, just, oh gosh, if they had only done this or if they hadn't done that. One of the big scourges, I think, is jargon. People use jargon to try and make themselves sound more sophisticated. But when you use jargon that your audience doesn't understand. And let's be clear about this. Most of the audience is not going to understand some obscure terminology that you're using. When you use that jargon, you are creating a very small collection of insiders who understand what you're talking about and a large collection of outsiders who are just mystified. Uh, It's often a lot clearer. Uh, it, It clarifies your own thinking to be able to remove that jargon and replace it with plain language. Uh, and some companies like Apple and Google, even though they do sophisticated technical things, have gotten very good at communicating clearly without jargon. I can imagine someone listening to you and saying, well, yeah, that may be fine for emails and or, or things, but sometimes things take a long explanation. Sometimes things are complicated. And so you have to write that way. Let me be as clear as I can about this. Anything you write would be better if it were 20% shorter. So, no, there, there are some things that need a more detailed explanation, but even the things that need a more detailed explanation, you're still going to be better off if you leave some stuff out. You want to eliminate redundancy. You want to get uh, be as direct as possible. And if you've got five points, you're going to be more effective if you make three of them and leave the other two out than you have to drag someone through every last element of your argument. Yeah, and that's hard to that is hard to do because when you think that, you know, I've got to make my case here, if I've got 5 points, I really should make all 5 points. Look, if you have something that's 500 words long, you have to ask yourself what will happen if people only read the first 300 words. That means that if you put the most important thing at the end, they may not notice it. On the other hand, if you communicate it as 300 great words, they're more likely to read the whole thing and they're more likely to act on it. 
Well, I find like when you write an email and, and make three requests, you typically get an answer to the first one and nobody reads the other two anyway. Yeah, that's one of my principles for email is that you want to have a single topic per email. Because of the way that people use email now, the, the subject line of the email becomes uh, the head of a whole thread of questions and responses. Now, if that's on one topic, that's easy to organize. It's easy for someone to put on their to-do list. If it's on five different topics, it's a disaster for the people who receive it. Do you think, uh, just from looking at this over the years that you've been looking at this, is people's uh, writing getting better, or is it getting worse? Is social media and email making things sloppier? What's your take on that? I guess I can look at that in two ways. First of all, people's writing is definitely getting worse, and that's just a question of sort of the law of averages. There are more people now writing more stuff uh, with less editing than we've ever had before. And as a result of that, there's just uh, more sort of ineffective writing going on from people who aren't professional writers. The other side of that is the way we read. Our attention spans are shorter and our ability to concentrate is worse because we're reading on a glass screen. So even writing that would have been acceptable if it was in print 10 years ago is now frustrating to get through when you're looking at it on a computer monitor. Any last words of wisdom for people that that just do this and and you'll be 10% ahead of the game? I think people need to realize that whether you're a worker who writes a few emails or somebody who is a professional business writer, that writing is important to all of us in our jobs. And if you adopt these principles of writing everything shorter, front-loading, making the structure easy to see, and removing toxic elements like passive voice, jargon, and meaningless qualifiers, you'll just be making a lot better impression on the people you communicate with. Great. Well, that's good advice, no matter what you're writing. And it comes from Josh Burnoff. Josh is author of the book, Writing Without BS. And there is a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, Josh. Thanks. Bye-bye. See if you've ever said this to yourself at some point in your life. You'd like to get a new car, but it's hard to justify because there's nothing wrong with the old car. Well, if you have ever said that to yourself, you're a member of a large club. Today, the average American car is about 11 and a half years old, which means that while, while new car owners are enjoying all the fancy electronics and other really cool features of their new car, the average driver still has a cassette deck. <laughs> The age of the average car has started to plateau over the last few years since car sales have picked up a bit. But experts say there's no rule for how long to hold on to an old car or truck. A car with good reliability can easily go for 200,000 miles or more. Interestingly, cars and trucks now have about the same average lifespan. For many years, cars had shorter lifespans than trucks, but their quality has pretty much caught up. And that is something you should know. And I'm sure there's somebody you know that would enjoy this podcast as much as you do. So please, send them the link, share it, tell them about it. I'd appreciate it. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. 
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.